Chapter Two, Part Two of Our Village, Volume One, by Mary Russell Mitford, read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One, Walks in the Country, Part Two, The First Primrose. March the sixth, fine March weather, boisterous, blustering, much wind and squalls of rain and yet the sky where the clouds are swept away deliciously blue with snatches of sunshine bright and clear and healthful and the roads in spite of the slight glittering showers crisply dry altogether the day is tempting very tempting it will not do for the deer common that windmill of a walk but the close sheltered lanes at the bottom of the hill which keep out just enough of the stormy air and let in all the sun will be delightful past our old house and round by the winding lanes and the workhouse and across the lee and so into the turnpike road again that is our route for to-day forth we set mayflower and i rejoicing in the sunshine and still more in the wind which gives such an intense feeling of existence and cooperating with brisk motion sets our blood and our spirits in a glow for mere physical pleasure there is nothing perhaps equal to the enjoyment of being drawn in a light carriage against such a wind as this by a blood horse at the height of his speed walking comes next to it but walking is not quite so luxurious or so spiritual not quite so much what one fancies of flying or being carried above the clouds in a balloon nevertheless a walk is a good thing especially under this southern hedgerow where nature is just beginning to live again the periwinkles with their starry blue flowers and their shining myrtle-like leaves garlanding the bushes woodbines and elder trees pushing out their small swelling buds and grasses and mosses springing forth in every variety of brown and green here we are at the corner where four lanes meet or rather where a passable road of stones and gravel crosses an impassable one of beautiful but treacherous turf and where the small white farmhouse scarcely larger than a cottage and the well-stocked rickyard behind tell of comfort and order but leave all unguessed the great riches of the master how he became so rich is almost a puzzle for though the farm be his own it is not large and though prudent and frugal on ordinary occasions farmer barnard is no miser his horses dogs and pigs are the best kept in the parish may herself although her beauty be injured by her fatness half envies the plight of his bitch fly his wife's gowns and shawls cost as much again as any shawls or gowns in the village his dinner parties to be sure they are not frequent display twice the ordinary quantity of good things two couples of ducks two dishes of green peas two turkey poults two gammons of bacon and two plum puddings moreover he keeps a single horse chaise and has built and endowed a methodist chapel and yet is he the richest man in these parts everything prospers with him money drifts about him like snow he looks like a rich man there is a sturdy squareness of face and figure a good-humoured obstinacy a civil importance he never boasts of his wealth or gives himself undue airs but nobody can meet him at market or vestry without finding out immediately that he is the richest man there 
They have no child to all this money, but there is an adopted nephew, a fine-spirited lad, who may perhaps some day or other play the part of a fountain to the reservoir. Now turn up the wide road till we come to the open common, with its park-like trees, its beautiful stream wandering and twisting along, and its rural bridge. Here we turn again, past that other white farmhouse, half hidden by the magnificent elms which stand before it. Our riches dwell not there, but there is found the next best thing, an industrious and light-hearted poverty. Twenty years ago, Rachel Hilton was the prettiest and merriest lass in the country. Her father, an old gamekeeper, had retired to a village alehouse, where his good beer, his social humour, and his black-eyed daughter brought much custom. She had lovers by the score, but Joseph White, the dashing and lively son of an opulent farmer, carried off the fair Rachel. They married and settled here, and here they live still, as merrily as ever, with fourteen children of all ages and sizes, from nineteen years to nineteen months, working harder than any people in the parish, and enjoying themselves more. I would match them for labour and laughter against any family in England. She is a blithe, jolly dame, whose beauty has amplified into comeliness. He is tall and thin and bony, with sinews like whipcord, a strong, lively voice, a sharp, weather-beaten face, and eyes and lips that smile and brighten when he speaks into a most contagious hilarity. They are very poor, and I often wished them richer, but I don't know, perhaps it might put them out. Quite close to Farmer White's is a little ruinous cottage, whitewashed once, and now in a sad state of betweenity, where dangling stockings and shirts, swelled by the wind, drying in a neglected garden, give signal of a washerwoman. There dwells, at present in single blessedness, Betty Adams, the wife of our sometimes gardener. I never saw anyone who so much reminded me in person of that lady whom everybody knows, Mistress Meg Merrilies, as tall, as grizzled, as stately, as dark, as gypsy-looking, bonneted and gowned like her prototype, and almost as oracular. Here the resemblance ceases. Mrs. Adams is a perfectly honest, industrious, painstaking person who earns a good deal of money by washing and charring, and spends it in other luxuries than tidiness, in green tea and gin and snuff. Her husband lives in a great family ten miles off. He's a capital gardener, or rather he would be so if he were not too ambitious. He undertakes all things and finishes none, but a smooth tongue, a knowing look, and a great capacity of labour carry him through. Let him but like his ale and his master, and he will do work enough for four. Give him his own way and his full quantum, and nothing comes amiss to him. Oh, May is bounding forward. Her silly heart leaps at the sight of the old place, and so in good truth does mine. What a pretty place it was, or rather how pretty I thought it. I suppose I should have thought any place so, where I had spent eighteen happy years. But it was really pretty, 
a large heavy white house in the simplest style surrounded by fine oaks and elms and tall massy plantations shaded down into a beautiful lawn by wild overgrown shrubs bowery acacias ragged sweet briars promontories of dogwood and portugal laurel and bays overhung by laburnum and bird cherry a long piece of water letting light into the picture and looking just like a natural stream the banks as rude and wild as the shrubbery interspersed with broom and firs and bramble and pollard oaks covered with ivy and honeysuckle the whole enclosed by an old mossy park paling and terminating in a series of rich meadows richly planted this is an exact description of the home which three years ago it nearly broke my heart to leave oh what a tearing up by the root it was i have pitied cabbage plants and celery and all transplantable things ever since though in common with them and with other vegetables the first agony of the transportation being over i have taken such firm and tenacious hold of my new soil that i would not for the world be pulled up again even to be restored to the old beloved ground not even if its beauty were undiminished which is by no means the case for in those three years it has thrice changed masters and every successive possessor has brought the curse of improvement upon the place so that between filling up the water to cure dampness cutting down trees to let in prospects planting to keep them out shutting up windows to darken the inside of the house by which means one end looks precisely as an eight of spades would do should that have the misfortune to lose one of his corner pips and building colonnades to lighten the outside added to a general clearance of pollards and brambles and ivy and honeysuckles and park palings and irregular shrubs the poor place is so transmogrified that if it had its old looking-glass the water back again it wouldn't know its own face and yet i love to haunt around it so does may her particular attraction is a certain broken bank full of rabbit burrows into which she insinuates her long pliant head and neck and tears her pretty feet by vain scratchings mine is a warm sunny hedgerow in the same remote field famous for early flowers never was a spot more variously flowery primroses yellow lilac white violets of either hue cowslips oxlips arums orchises wild hyacinths ground ivy pansies and strawberries heart's ease all formed a small part of the flora of that wild hedgerow how profusely they covered the sunny open slope under the weeping birch the lady of the woods and how often have i started to see the early innocent brown snake who loved the spot as well as i did winding among the young blossoms or rustling amongst the fallen leaves there are primrose leaves already and short green buds but no flowers not even in that fir's cradle so full of roots where they used to blow as in a basket no my may no rabbits no primroses we may as well get over the gate into the woody winding lane which will bring us home again here we are making the best of our way between the old elms that arch so solemnly overhead dark and sheltered even now 
They say that a spirit haunts this deep pool, a white lady without a head. I cannot say that I have seen her, often as I have paced this lane at deep midnight to hear the nightingales and look at the glowworms. But there, better and rarer than a thousand ghosts, dearer even than nightingales or glowworms, there is a primrose, the first of the year, a tuft of primroses springing in yonder sheltered nook from the mossy roots of an old willow, and living again in the clear bright pool. Oh, how beautiful they are, three fully blown and two bursting buds. How glad I am I came this way. They're not to be reached. Even Jack Rapley's love of the difficult and the unattainable would fail him here. May herself couldn't stand on that steep bank. So much the better. Who would wish to disturb them? There they live in their innocent and fragrant beauty, sheltered from the storms and rejoicing in the sunshine and looking as if they could feel their happiness. Who would disturb them? Oh, how glad I am I came this way home. End of chapter 2, part 2